0: Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, I'm your host Ben Pikolsky, we have an amazing guest for you as always. Dr. Guillermo Escalante joins me today to discuss research with respect to muscle building, fat loss, cardio, getting in the best shape of your life. We even get into contest week prep, sometimes this elusive thing, getting into amazing shape and then keeping it. And last week, many people mess it up. We're going to dissect the research and our opinions and so much more in this amazing episode. Dr. Guillermo Escalante. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bubs. B-U-B-S, bubsnaturals.com, the greatest MCT powder on the planet. I promise you, if you're someone who consumes oat milk, almond milk, coconut milk, anything normal milk, cow's milk in your coffee, if you're a latte type of person, throwing one to two scoops of MCT powder in your coffee, specifically from bubs, and I'll tell you why in a minute, will completely change the game for you. I'm not selling you on this. I'm telling you a fact. If you put two scoops of this powder in there, it's the most delicious, creamy coffee you've ever had in your life. It it far exceeds any latte I've ever had. It's so delicious, especially if you blend it. If you want to make it extra awesome, add a little bit of collagen, a little bit of lion's mane, and maybe a little bit stevia and it's just the most delicious thing in the world. That's what I call my intelligence coffee. And uh, I absolutely love it. And I'm a huge fan of bubs, bubsnaturals.com is where you go to get hooked up with 20% off head over to bubsnaturals.com, get hooked up with 20% off. Use the code muscle. Now back to the show with Dr. Guillermo Escalante. So I'm curious, what area, you know, obviously with the background in bodybuilding, what area was was the one that stood out to you as maybe having the biggest disparity between what common uh, beliefs are to reality?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's often that's fun. It's a fun struggle that I see because um, when I when I was in the reading a lot of things, and I would often see as like a lot of scientists that are pure scientists would often disregard what, what people were doing in the field and applying on the field. And then on the other end of the spectrum, sometimes people on the field would often kind of disregard everything that's being done in the science. And, and I really had the eye of, you know, it's like, I think there's, there's a, there's a a lot of stuff here where we can really learn from each other and, um, and I actually, you know, I did a post this morning, and uh, one of the things that I talked about is, you know, drop setting, right? And you know, this drop setting is something that's, you know, for for a common meathead. I mean, we've been doing that for decades, and it's something that, if you actually look at the literature behind drop sets, like we've really, we've really only been studying it for the last few years, mm-hmm. and to understand the mechanism of action, how it could potentially help, uh, you know, does it help at all? And I think. Uh, what I've really enjoyed is just putting that, putting that magnifying glass uh, of of uh, the application of what's being done in the field, and actually studying it, and then putting some sort of methodology there, and 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 really trying to see uh, what's going on. And I think the biggest takeaway that I see, um, I think for the general population, the 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 average Joe that's just trying to get healthier, I think. Uh, Sometimes a lot of people really uh, major in the minors and they're really not that important for the average Joe. But I think as we start peeling layers and go up into the higher escalons of human performance, into the elite levels of you know pro football, pro baseball, uh, the Olympics, uh, you know in the Olympia and bodybuilding, you know now all these little details really potentially tend to matter. And um, one thing that I often write a lot write a lot about is you know a, a, a small effect size that's found in a in a paper that may not even be statistically significant uh, to some degree may actually be the difference between first and 10th at the very elite level where we're talking, you know, just minute changes that can make a difference. So I think that's where I see a lot of the disparity is, you know, um, sometimes we see maybe high level professionals that uh, have been doing it at a very high level. And for them, those details matter. And they're preaching that this matters to the general public. And I Mm -hmm. think, well, you know, not necessarily, you know, it's, It's it's, let's let's work on the bigger picture because you're missing the forest for the trees. But for the elite, it matters.
0: And I'm glad you see that. Right. So so many researchers don't acknowledge that. So so you have to acknowledge that the highest level of human performance is ultimately where you kind of um, determine where things fall and where things succeed, right? If I'm pushing the ba- the boundaries of what my body's capable of or what anybody's capable of, I can tell where that theory breaks and where that one holds up. And, and that's, that's where we have to start looking as researchers or people interested in high-level performance. Like, what does this actually apply? And what are all the things that actually move the needle to increase this person's performance? So whatever their sport, we have to start looking at, at, you know, all of the details, all of the, the variables, right? And again, so I think my audience is, you know, there's obviously a wide range of people listening, but everyone's trying to get the most out of what they're already doing. We, we all train, we all, uh, you know, work hard for the most part, but now people are realizing there's more nuance involved. And that's, that's kind of really where, the, you know, people sometimes, as you say, misunderstand the research or they misunderstand what the high-level athletes are playing or, or saying, and don't really understand how to weigh those options. Cause you have the researchers over here saying, oh, that's all crap. That doesn't work. And you have the profits over here saying, well, that's, this is what works for me. So really for the average person, it's effectively impossible to start navigating through all this stuff so someone like yourself you have this beautiful um you know, on both sides of the fence where like hey i see this research and i see how this applies and i see where it doesn't apply
1: yeah absolutely and i i I it's nice that uh, you have that perspective as well because uh peeling those layers and it's just a matter of hierarchy you know i think for you know the the, the decondition obese population you know uh the, the, the those those little details you know, yeah. don't matter much. But now, if you're if you're hitting all, you know, as as an Olympian competitor, for example, when you're dotting every i and crossing every t, you know, missing dotting one of those eyes could mean the difference between winning and losing. Especially if you if they're cumulative over yeah. time.
0: So you mentioned drop sets. So I'd love to have you um, walk through mechanistically, like if that's something you posted about today. Are they effective mechanistically? What's happening? Who should be using them? I'd like to just like that. I think it would be a very interesting conversation for us to have just go through. Okay. Well, what's actually happening at a muscular level. What's actually happening in a cellular level. What's happening in an energy level at a nervous system level. Is it useful? Has the data shown it to be more effective at muscle building or at burning fat or at depleting energy systems or or whatever, what do we know about them?
1: Yeah. uh, And and this is, again, uh, one thing that I, that I noted on is, you know, I think there's we're starting to scrape the, the, the surface on what we know and, uh, you know, the theory behind, you know, why potentially may drop sets work. Uh, you know, we, we can take it a multifactorial approach. So one is we know that uh, let's say you have a load and uh, th- this study work was particularly done that I posted on was doing a leg extension exercise. So they had individuals uh, that were recreationally trained. Uh, they trained one leg doing leg extensions with traditional sets and then the other leg doing a drop set technique for, for eight weeks. And uh, what, what's uh, really interesting with uh, with the study is uh, obviously the mechanistically what we're looking at is, uh, let's say you're doing, keep the math easy, 100 pounds on that drop set. So you take it to a momentary muscular failure um, and uh, you got a 10 RM on there and, and that's all you can do. So then uh, we'll keep keep it easy. We'll do just one single drop set. So then you drop the load 20%. Now you're doing 80 pounds because you decrease the load. You can obviously get more repetitions out of there. Uh, so one mechanistic way in which it can work is, well, obviously by default, you're going to do more volume. And we know that volume is related to to hypertrophy. Uh, The other component is even though you're taking the the muscle to momentary failure at that point in time, it is a momentary failure for those 10 repetitions. However, uh, now you drop the load 20%, you can still squeeze a little more juice out of that muscle to take it kind of a little bit further and beyond, which is gonna potentially activate now more uh, more motor units to be able to, to make the muscle work at that point in time. Um, the other component is, uh, obviously when you're, when you're going further into fatigue, you have, uh, an entire, uh, now metabolic adaptation going on. Uh, so, and, and that's been shown to potentially, uh, increase, uh, muscle hypertrophy. Uh, interestingly in this particular study, there was no, uh, no changes in strength, uh, between the traditional set and the drop set group. Um, but, uh, what was interesting is there was changes in muscle thickness in the rectus femoris muscle group, uh, at the 30% uh, muscle length and at the 50% muscle length, when they went down to the 70% muscle length, there was no longer a change in muscle thickness of, uh, uh the, the one that went through the intervention and so, at the back. Sorry, just, just, a, oh, just,
0: a, just a 30% being closer to the hip, 50% in the middle 70% closer to the knee. Correct. Got
1: Correct. Correct. And then the, the other component, the vastus lateralis, uh, which where they measure muscle thickness at different levels as well. No change in that. So in this particular study, we saw increase in size in um, you know, that non homogenous growth of the of the rectus femoris, which is another thing that is kind of uh, sometimes people have dismissed for a long time. It's like, oh, you can't grow a certain part of the muscle. Well, no, you actually can, and totally. we, we see a lot of research on that.
0: Yeah, yeah what was the sample size? Uh,
1: on that one, I believe they had – oh, I, I want to – I'm saying either 16 or 25. I can't okay. remember if it was 16 or
0: 25. So, like, so that's sometimes where these these things break down for me is you got six people and, and with six people, it doesn't it doesn't cancel out for execution, right? Like if you got a large cohort, you can like, okay, they're going to have a great amount of variance, but at least it kind of cancels out for how they're doing these things. But sometimes they have like six people and I'm like, well, I don't know if that's enough for me. to, to oh, actually so have, It was 16,
1: 16. Yeah,
0: I know, I know that's what I'm saying. But sometimes oh, some of these oh, things yeah. have, have a smaller cohorts. So and I was like, I don't know if that's enough to kind of cancel yes. all these these superfluous variables that could be, influencing, uh, you know, ultimately the outcome of the, of the study.
1: Oh yeah. I agree a hundred percent, you know, that inter inter individual variability is, is a huge component. And one thing that I always preach a lot is let's look at the population that you're Mm -hmm. dealing with too, because if they're untrained versus trained, and even when they define train I love to look at the literature because a lot of times, when you read the literature, how do how do how do scientists define train? Right. And typically, it's like, hey, you have six months of training experience, training a minimum of two times a week, that's considered trained. I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, kind of. I mean, that's not really compared to somebody who's been training for five years, five days a week. That's yeah. trained. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that those are a lot of uh, I think uh, variables that we have to consider with the with the population.
0: Yeah, very, very cool. Um, one thing that comes to mind as I think of a study like that is I'd like to see some studies done whereby you, you test a protocol now for eight weeks. Let's say, you know, you, you do superset or sorry, drop sets versus versus straight sets and then test them again in three months. Because the thing that I acknowledge is like, Sometimes what I'm doing today isn't necessarily going to immediately translate into muscle growth, but maybe it's preparing some system in my body to be more effective over time. And people don't acknowledge that. Right. So if you talk about system like like uh, drop sets, as an example, maybe energetically, it's 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 improving my ability to produce ATP in, in a timely manner. Maybe it's improving my nervous system's ability to recruit more muscles. Therefore, in three months, I'm going to be bigger, but right now maybe acutely, it didn't make the big change, but maybe over, again, that's just an example. But like, I think that's the, that's the thing that I'd like to see studied over time is like what, what, uh, acute training has the greatest, uh, long-term effect.
1: Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. And I think that's one of the limitations a lot from the, uh, from the researcher side is, you know, most of us work at universities, mm, so totally. you're kind of limited with, uh, you know how how long it's typically a semester right because that's how long you can recruit students for obviously you have summer break winter break so to have a 16 week study that's a really long study but then it misses some of these questions that uh you know uh can definitely be impacted, and I think it it may make a difference.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it would just be something like, "Hey, do do this four week training now, then go away for six months, and come back in six months, and let's see based on just this intervention now, what happens six months later?" I'd be curious to see if there's a difference, right? And and again, who knows? Like I have I have theories about what would happen, but I think it may be something that's that's a little bit big picture, like you know, for me, so. If I'm working as a bodybuilder, like that's what I'm investing in, right? I'm investing in the workout I do today and for the next four weeks is an investment in the future. Whereas in in studies, we're not necessarily looking at, like I'm looking at the next 10 years, whereas most people in the study are looking, I just want to see what happens in this four to eight week period. And like, well, yeah, to me, that's much less important than the big picture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, in making those inferences from relatively short-term studies uh, can be difficult. One of them that I we wrote on was on uh, you know uh, fasted cardio versus fed cardio, and uh, one of the one of the nuances that I picked out. If we we did a whole literature search. This was last year, um, or I guess maybe a year and a half ago when when we were actually doing it. But you know, realistic. If you look at all the literature, there's really only one real study at that point in time that had been done on facet versus fed cardio, but it was done on on uh, on females that were not obese by any means. They were athletes, collegiate athletes. If I remember, I think they were basketball, maybe, maybe track and field athletes, but you know um, they were in decent shape. But I think if you look at their average starting body fat percentages, they were like in the low to mid twenties, which isn't, you know, obese by any means, but that's by no means super fit, even for a female. Uh, and I think to get to the levels from, you know, this 20, to get them from 25 now to 18% for a female, Uh, compared to getting a female down from 15% down to 10%. It's a whole different animal Mm -hmm. of level of conditioning, but the intervention was also only four weeks and uh, there was no statistical significance between the the interventions. But I always say, it's like, okay, well, what if you implement this mode of of training over a eight week period, 12 week period, 16 week period, because if you look at the numbers, There was actually it didn't reach statistical significance, but there was a slight difference between the facet group actually lost a little bit more body fat than the than the the fed group. Uh, Again, we can't we can't say based on the current evidence that that that's going to be the case for everything, but it kind of puts a little asterisk in there that we should maybe there may be something else there that we're missing.
0: Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a mechanistic guy. I want to understand what's happening mechanistically, how we could dif- differentiate between like, um, fasted and un- unfasted cardio or fed cardio. Um, but so again, same, same situation comes up there, right? Maybe someone does four weeks of fasted cardio and someone does four weeks of not, or not fasting or non-fasting cardio. What happens to them in four weeks, right? What happens to them six weeks later, like after the study? Cause I'm curious, is it, how much is it affecting the body at the level of the genome right the epigenetic expression the hormone expression the insulin sensitivity and inflammation like are those things playing in not just acutely maybe like it wasn't enough time four weeks wasn't enough time to see a significant shift in the genome but maybe if you did it for three months or maybe if you did it for four weeks and then come back three months later was there a difference in in the expression of those two groups i'm just curious you, you know more about the stuff of me that would be my where my brain goes
1: uh, yeah, no. And, and those are all great questions that I think you're right. It's one of those where we we really can't answer that uh, very well. We can we can hypothesize if we can say it's like, hey, maybe it does. And, you know, maybe the person can keep the weight off for a longer period of time. Maybe they don't gain as much body fat because they those changes were made. Um Yeah, there's just so much uh, interesting information uh, out there, uh, you know, related to that. Another with regards to that, another interesting caveat was, you know, there's been some acute studies on protein fasted cardio. So instead of just going completely fasted, well, let's get some protein intake. Okay, yeah, your insulin levels are going to spike up a little bit. That's going to be natural if you do whey protein or even EAAs. You're going to get that. But does that blunt, you know, the the uh, lipolytic effect. Does it does it blunt oxidation? Um, and, uh, you know, what what we see right now, at least acutely, there's only been an acute study done on that. Uh, you know, we actually found that uh, it actually naturally is going to increase overall uh, caloric expenditure over time. But that's can be explained because, well, yeah, you're feeding your body. Your, your metabolism is going to increase. There's a thermic effect of food uh, when you're consuming that. Uh, so it's very interesting to see, you know, uh, what would happen. Plus now you have a, you know, there's, there's an argument there where you have a, now a, a pool of amino acids that are present. So instead of, you know, going on the, the reserve of what's, what's in your muscle, uh, now you have a, a, a complete pool of amino acids that can potentially be partly used for fuel as well, but to preserve some of your, your fat free mass, uh, over time. But again, a lot of those mechanisms just haven't been investigated. and. Uh, it would be interesting to see a, you know, a longer term study related to that. So
0: walk me through fasted and unfasted cardio mechanistically, right? So what the logic may be mechanistically. So people suggest that fasted cardio is greater because um, your insulin levels are low. Typically your um, glycogen levels are low. Um, It's been shown to maybe burn more fat during the event, right? So that's kind of the three major points for that camp. The other camp is uh fed cardio, you may not burn as much fat during, but your body tends to balance out afterwards, right? So what's your stance? Just if you I, I, maybe based on the research, and then basically logically uh, logically, like using logic to, to navigate your way through both stance, if you were to pick one, which would you pick?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I like to uh answer it kind of in two layers because I go for okay, what what am I gonna tell, you know, uh average Joe trying to get in shape? Uh, average Joe trying to get in shape, I'm going to tell him it really doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him, you know, just, just get it done. It's just, it's just simple. At the end of the day, you know, uh, th- do you need to have it? No, it's not an essential. Uh, it's not going to really make a difference. Hmm. Now, um, if you're asking me now, uh, I'm going to be training an, an Olympian who is now, you know, say uh, eight weeks out of competition. Uh, you know, he's already down to uh, say, you know, single, single digit body fat just needs a, a last little bit to go. Uh, he's already been on a caloric deficit. You know, that that person is not going to be cheating on their diet because they're a professional, you know, that they're taking, you know, PEDs that are going to potentially enhance this process. So you have a lot of other variables They're They're dotting every I crossing every T, um, at this point in time, I'm going to kind of have to look a little bit deeper in my toolbox and say, OK, well, you know, may this potentially make a difference at the end of the day, when I when I look at what I'm going to prescribe, I'm going to say, first of all, do no harm. Right. And and second of all, may it help. And if it does no harm and there's there's really potentially no difference, but there's a slight chance that it may help. I'm going to go for that. So my my point of view is it's probably not going to hurt the results of anything, may be the same. Yeah. And you may gain a little bit from it and you're already crossing all these T's and donning all these eyes. So I'm going to say, let's definitely implement it at that point in time. Um, yeah.
0: So as far as well, let's talk, let's have the intensity conversation then. Right. So let's say I'm 16 weeks out from Mr. Olympia. I've got 10% body fat. I'm getting ready to do, to do the Olympia and I want to be in the best shape of my life. I want to implement a cardio routine. Where do I start? Right. So, some people are saying, you know, you need to be in this fat burning zone, which is, you know, arbitrary. Maybe um, some people are saying you got to do high intensity. Some people are saying you got to low intensity. Some of you got to mix. Walk me through your your thought process, most importantly, on how, how you logic your way through a, developing a 16 week cardio regimen, moving somebody from, you know, call it maybe they start at 20%. And they want to get to five. Let's start there.
1: Yeah, I think um, the first thing I I always look at is uh, what were they doing before, right? So they're they're at this point now. So what have they been doing the Instead
0: last? So they're doing you know? no cardio, no three three months no cardio.
1: Yeah. So if if they if they haven't done anything, then obviously uh, to me we're, we want to give a give a, a start an effect size. Obviously, my goal is not to out cardio the person to do two hours a day. You know that we're not we're not endurance athletes. We want to spend most of our time in the weight room or posing and doing that component of it. Um, so I would start definitely, I may, I may not even start with cardio right away. If they haven't been on a caloric deficit, uh, I may just implement a caloric deficit, uh, for, for a period of time and wait a week or two and see what the response is to that. Um, and I would maybe focus on their non non non-exercise activity thermogenesis and making sure that they're maintaining uh, their physical activity levels. Because I think that's one thing that uh, gets missed a lot. Um, and we do know, actually, there was a recent paper that came out that actually shows some of this is that how our bodies actually compensate. And, you know, we we start exercising, reading the caloric deficit, but, you know, oftentimes we we'll get com- get compromises. Now you start moving less generally throughout the day. So, you used to take 8,000 steps a day now, because you're doing this fasted cardio, you're getting up earlier, you're in a calorie deficit. Now you're only taking 4,000 steps a day yep. because you're sitting on your ass the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, kind of logging those components. So I'm, I, I may not even start with cardio right away. I may say, let's, let's get a, a subtle caloric deficit, maybe a, a 15, 20% caloric deficit. See what happens there. Um, Change our change maybe see what what we need to do nutritionally um, and work on the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Now we get to the next phase where okay. Uh, so need-
0: before you go to the next phase, I want to ask you a question. That so, if I'm getting ready for the Olympia or, or, or any contest, let's say any 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 physique or, or bodybuilding contest, your advice is for most people to start in a fifteen to twenty percent calorie deficit.
1: Yeah, usually. I, well, it, it depends on where you are, right? It depends where that person is. So. Uh, I think you, you gave me two examples. So one person might've been 10%, 16 weeks out, they're in a really good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to need a, a whole lot to go. Uh, the other example, you're 20% and, you, and, you, and you're 16 weeks out, you got a big hill to climb. Yep. So um, I think it's it, it's ultimately going to be uh, determined by where is their starting point right now? Um, and, and almost how long have they, have they been at that starting point? So maybe they've actually been they've maintained that their body weight hasn't fluctuated much. Their body composition hasn't fluctuated much and they're in a fairly good place. So um, I'm going to always kind of, uh, I like to reverse engineer things. So here's our finish line. And then, you know, how much time do we have? Um, And oftentimes what I, what I may try to do is if it doesn't make sense right for us to get there, uh, like if I have to put you in a, in a 40% calorie deficit to get you into shape, uh, I'm probably going to say, let's just change the finish line. This finish line is not a realistic finish line. Right. Let's move the finish line up six or eight weeks. So now I can, I can actually get you there better. Otherwise we can get you there, but that person's not going to look their best. You're going to have to kill them to get there. You're going to lose a lot of the, the mass that they've, that they've gained to be able to get in the shape that required for them to do that particular competition. So I think that's that first step is where's your starting point in, determining if that finish line is a realistic finish line.
0: That's huge. And one thing that I'm sure you'll understand is like as an athlete, my objective is I want to build muscle as, as often as possible. So the place that I start and you do this intuitively first question I ask is what's their training capacity, right? Relative to their, to their peak level of performance, their peak level of volume and capacity, where are they now? Right? So if they're really, really low training volume or very poorly conditioned for, from, tra- from a training perspective, well, then I think the greatest opportunity is always starting there. I know you'll agree with that, but like that's just another nuance, right? As people people are like, oh, uh, I'm just going to put you in a caloric deficit and do a bunch of cardio. But like 95% of the people, I mean, including pro athletes have so much margin for progress in just simply improving their training intensity or capacity, their volume, all of it. And so it's almost like training like like a pro athlete getting ready for the, for the hockey season or baseball season, right? It's like when you start the off season, we got to get you to the point where you can actually perform at a high level. So like before I put someone in a caloric deficit or maybe starts in a low caloric deficit, I always want to kind of check for, that. So just that bring, I'm bringing that up as a kind of a, a lesson for the listener, just like, where's your capacity, right? If you're not at, at least at a high level capacity, you're completely not ready to start into a caloric deficit. Your body simply won't, you can't perform at a high enough level to to build muscle and lose fat to begin with.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that starting found, where's your foundation at? Mm-hmm. is a big question Yeah, Uh, to kind of determine all of those, all of those questions.
0: So let's go back to that cardio question. Cause I I would love to hear your logic because everyone's got a different approach and I'd love to hear how you, how you would approach that. Like, so a couple of questions, I'll kind of, I'll just kind of narrow it down for you. Uh, is it high intensity? Is it zone two? Is it, um, you know, does aerobic fitness matter ultimately, right? Does that VO two kind of, does, does that matter to you?
1: Yeah. So I think the first question is, um, you know, I like to always, uh, discuss the, you know, the, the fat burning zone and the, you know, the, the high intensity zone. And I I always like to say, it's like, okay, whatever, whatever energy, uh, you're using acutely really has no effect on, you know, overall, you know, fat loss over time. So if I'm burning fat right now, doing low intensity exercise, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm going to burn more body fat over a period of time. And, And at the end of the day, we know that, you know, burning more body fat over a period of time means you have to oxidize. So, so it's not, it's not just, you know, the lipolysis component is the oxidation of that. Um, so that that's a cumulative thing over time, which requires you to create a, to be in a negative caloric, uh, in, in a caloric deficit yeah. at, at the end of the day. So you want to create that caloric deficit, how, well, you can do it obviously from both ends of the spectrum, energy expenditure or energy intake. Uh, and you have to kind of balance those two things. Uh, I tend to be a, a cardio minimalist, so you know, get do as little as you can and get get the most out of it and then progress it accordingly uh, based on what you need. Why, why is that? Well, to me is uh, again, it's a matter of uh, we look at specificity of training, and you know we're we're not endurance athletes. Uh, we're 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 actually trying to maximize muscle mass, right? and we want to maintain that. So we really need to spend most of our time, you know, doing what we're going to be doing. And, and that, that's going to require lifting weights to maintain the, the muscle hypertrophy and, you know, maybe uh, get the balanced physique that you want. So you can, you know, develop the muscles the way you want to develop them for your physique to enhance the way you look. And then the other component of it, I think is, Uh, If you're going to do extra caloric expenditure, maybe you should do it doing what you're going to be doing on stage, which is actually posing. posing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And that's actually one of my agenda items is actually looking at how many calories do we spend doing posing, uh, which would be an actually interesting study to look at that and implementing that as part of you can periodize that into your training program.
0: Yeah, and one of the greatest benefits. I mean, everyone that starts with me, I always start beginner or advanced, I start everyone on an opposing routine because the amount of transfer I see into training is just is is just unbelievable, right? So positional strength and positional stability is is real in, in training, right? So if I get really strong contracting a muscle in a very specific length tension, then that transfers into training. So I'm trying to get people to get strong and to cue into their ability to, to consciously contract muscles in, in weird positions. Right. So that to me has such an incredible transfer into people's results in the gym across the board. So I, like percent. if you're going to pick one or the other, when it comes to physique enhancement, are you posing or cardio? Well, maybe, maybe we do both in the beginning. Cause most people posing their, their ability to contract the muscles is really, really bad. So caloric <laughs> expenditure is probably pretty poor, but um, eventually like as a pro man, the, the, the amount of effort that goes into posing is Uh, you know, in the beginning when you haven't done it in a while is very high.
1: Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And yeah, and there's a lot of benefits and ultimately that's the way you're going to be judged anyway. So, you know, if you, if you can't present everything that you've done um, you know, now you, you did zero specificity of training. It's kind of like, you know, asking a football player to, you know, go, go run a a play when they've never practiced that play. It's like, it's Mm -hmm. not going to work, you know?
0: (laughs) yeah, so many people lose the show just because of the lack of the ability to pose?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So just want to sum up sum up that question if someone's doing cardio, are you like, a, a, a you know, see some bodybuilders or aspiring bodybuilders doing these, like, it basically looks like they're sauntering in the park, right? They're going for a walk and they're watching birds out while they're on the treadmill. You see other people that are, you know, walking, but getting after it, right. Or they've an elliptical, but they're getting after it. And they're probably, you know, more like zone two, whereas the other people, maybe zone one, where's your, where's your stance on like, intensity of this stuff is is it do- again I mean, you kind of said it doesn't matter um but the, yeah is, is that what your stance is like you just got to burn the calories it really doesn't matter if you're burning if you're going hard or you're going slow
1: yeah i think um it yeah, yeah i don't think at the end of the day it matters as much and obviously the, the tr- there's a trade-off right you you can do higher intensity stuff for less time or you could do lower intensity stuff for more time but at the end we're trying to get that caloric deficit yeah. and, and, uh, so that's kind of the way. And the other thing I think of too, is what's your recovery like? Because, you know, if you, if you, if you have a killer sprint session three days a week with, with jumps and, 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 uh, high energy sprints and stairs, and now, you know, how are you going to train legs and how are you going to, how's going to yeah. impact your ability to, to do the other training that you yep. really need to do?
0: Yep. So hasn't anyone ever looked at, um, like mitochondrial density and its influence on caloric expenditure. So my brain goes to. Hey, I'm doing a bunch of hit, or maybe some some zone two work, and I'm and I'm in, increasing that mitochondrial biogenesis. Ultimately, the, the cell's ability to upregulate caloric expenditure. Let's say I do that for the first four weeks of a contest prep, and I'm, I'm intentional about building that zone two training and building that aerobic fitness. How does that influence the end result? And, and maybe there's no data on that, but I'm curious what your judgment would be.
1: Yeah, and uh, I haven't read any data on that, but you know, uh, I mean, over time, I, I think what I have to see is how long would it take for that adaptation to take place? Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if, you know, three or four weeks would be enough to get a a significant amount of an adaptation um, to, to carry over uh, later, later into that. But I mean, of course, you know, some sort of uh, you know, I'm going to say minimal level of aerobic fitness is going to be advantageous, obviously to recover between your sets. You know, it's something that uh, again, even though I'm a cardio minimalist, you know, I still do, you know, some sort of aerobic activity in the off season uh, mm-hmm. to maintain, you know, just for cardiovascular health and mm-hmm. to maintain that. Uh, and, and not only that, but just to, to not have to feel like I have to, you know, take a two minute break after I go up two flights of stairs, you know, it just, just doesn't feel good. Uh, but regardless, I also don't want to be at the other end of the spectrum where where I'm doing, you know, two hours a day, six days a week.
0: Yeah. What's your stance on insulin? So, and not, not talking exogenous use, I'm talking just like controlling levels of insulin when it comes to impacting body composition. So you get this one camp who says like, you know, maybe from a longevity and health perspective, they're saying controlling your insulin is very, very important. Uh, We don't want to have huge fluctuations and huge spikes in insulin. Obviously we know that insulin plays a big role in recovery. Uh, I'm curious where your stance is specific to fat loss. Where does, where's your stance on insulin? Should people be um, aiming to control their, their blood glucose and keep those insulin levels low or should, or does it matter? So if I, if I, as long as I'm hitting my macros for the day or I'm in a caloric deficit, insulin doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I think, I think just by, by uh, a natural phenomenon, if you're going to be in a caloric deficit over time your insulin levels are going to be naturally on, on the lower end uh, over time. And even because you're just not consuming that that high quantity of, of, uh, of nutrients to be able to, to create uh, these huge spikes. So I think it's one of those where it's almost going to take care of itself, uh, you know, by having a caloric deficit. Uh, even if you're having, a, you know, uh, let's say a, a high glycemic index, you know, carbohydrate, you know, a lot of that, to, to, uh, recover after your training, a lot of that's going to go essentially to replenish some of your glycogen. Uh, and, and I think it's to create a caloric deficit and have high insulin levels at the same time. I think it's, it's a, it's a very hard thing to accomplish, uh, when you are in a caloric deficit.
0: So there's a lot of people now eating fewer meals, right? So I know for, for many athletes, i having like two meals a day. And, and there's some people who say that like, at obviously at a high level, we know it matters, but let's say I was eating two meals a day. I need to consume 400 grams of carbs. That would be a, a huge amount of nutrients at one time. I'm curious about your perspective on that. I know I've got my opinions, but I'm curious what your perspective is on that.
1: Yeah. And I think this is one of those where, uh, again, it's, it's, uh, uh, It's funny, we we actually uh, were discussing this just uh, a a week or two ago. Uh, This is specifically to protein, but it's one of those things, you know, it's like the the question always is, and I'm sure you probably see this as, you know, how much protein can you absorb in in one sitting? Well, the answer is you can absorb all of it, but how much can you actually put it to use for muscle protein synthesis? And the answer is, is Only a percentage of that, depending on how big you are and and whatnot. Uh, But realistically, you know, you want to create, and and this actually has been studied. You know, you want to create, you know, reach reach the um, basically uh, implement frequent feeding so you can reach that MPS over time. You know, at least four to six times a day. That's going to give you kind of an optimal use rather than having one giant serving or two giant servings. So let's say we're trying for two hundred grams of protein you know, two 100 gram servings will kind of do the job, but not as well as getting 450 gram servings. Right, uh, and, and I think that's, and with the carbs, same thing. I think it's one of those where, uh, yeah, if you're only going to have it in, in one meal, um, I mean, first of all, you're not going to be able to eat as much. So to get all of that nutrition in, in one sitting, uh, I mean, I guess it's pretty easy to eat, you know, 2,500 calories of crap, but to get you know, twenty five hundred calories of straight chicken, rice, and broccoli, it's pretty hard <laughs> to be able to do it in one sitting.
0: Yeah. So how much does that matter, right? Because you have these camps, so people are like, hey, it's just macros. And some people are like, hey, obviously, micronutrients matter as well. I'd love to hear your your best judgment. Obviously, you just completed an incredible study around uh, looking at um, the entire prep week process. So obviously, you've looked at the influence of micronutrients and macronutrients and all these things on body composition and, and ultimately appearance. So I'm curious how, how you stand on that right now. So if I was loading for a contest, for example, are donuts and cheesecake okay? Or should I be sticking with things that are um, maybe whole food based?
1: Yeah, I think the uh, the key for that, I think, especially, you know, pre the, the, that last week is you know, if you're going to reintroduce things that your body, you haven't fed your body for the last five months, um, you're probably going to have some issues, digestive issues and uh, to be able to actually utilize those. So uh, and believe me, I've done those strategies, too, because I mean, hey, it's fantastic to, to get you. you haven't eaten donuts for five weeks for five months. And somebody tells you, hey, you can you can have those. Yeah, it's going to taste pretty good but it doesn't feel very good. And it's, it's very hard for them to actually work. So I think, you know, uh, getting foods that you're accustomed to, that you're eat, that, that, uh, you've been doing for the last a while, your body's going to definitely, uh, you're going to have no unknown barriers at that point in time. You know, how your body's going to respond to, uh, what the whole foods that you've been feeding it for the last, you know, uh, four to six months. Uh, so I think that's going to be, uh, very important to, to, uh, To consider and and definitely, I think to answer your question, I think that these minor details again for the average guy, average girl trying to lose weight, you know, if they want to do it over over two or three meals a day over time. Let's just talk about let's
0: talk about high level performance, right? Forget about the average people; I don't care about them. For
1: the high level performance, (laughs) it all matters. Absolutely.
0: It all matters. Okay, good. And finally, great to hear somebody say that because like there are all these, these people out there just, and the problem is you got these idiots who just shout louder than everybody else. Like, you know, but anyways, I don't want to, I don't want to, The people who talk the loudest on the internet tend to get the most attention. I'm like, they don't know what the hell they're talking about, but they they tend to be really adamant about their beliefs. And and they're, you know, so it's good to get information from people who actually know what the hell they're talking about. So let's talk about it. So eating, eating foods that are maybe more nutrient dense, matters, micronutrient dense.
1: Yeah, definitely. Especially when, you know, I always look at, I kind of look at a lot of uh, diets and foods. It's like, Hey, look, you have, you have a nutrition budget, you know, accordingly. And uh, you know, there's certain things that you have to Kind of uh, pay payvers so if we look at we look at it like from a financial perspective you know we all have to put food in our mouths we have to put gas in our car we have to pay we have, we have to live somewhere we have to pay so those are those are where all of these important things so are we getting the appropriate amount of protein and you know are we getting whole protein in that are we getting enough of the vitamins and minerals to get our body to function are we getting enough fiber uh, and if we're consuming a lot of uh, you know high calorie foods that offer none of those nutrients. Now uh, you don't have the budget to do that because you you only have so many calories to consume that in. So, right. um, so if you, if you're in a caloric deficit, uh, heck, you might you might only get twenty five hundred calories or two thousand calories to get all of these essential components in. So by the time you add, by the time you get in two hundred grams of protein on a two thousand calorie diet, well, that's eight hundred calories of your two thousand calorie budget. Uh, Now you have to get enough fiber to to get that as well. Uh, You have to get enough uh, nutrients from your your vegetables, for example, to get all the micronutrients. So you don't have a lot to budget for uh, with, uh, you know, say uh, a Pop-Tart. Now, can you eat a Pop-Tart? You might be able to budget for it. Uh, But to me, I'm going to say is like I would rather get let my dollar go a little further and get more nutrient dense foods that are going to be more advantageous to me
0: how much, how much in your research of this, you know, this final week of contest prep or even just like getting in great shape to begin with, does inflammation play in? Like, is that, is that a factor you're ever taking into, into account when you're getting ready for a contest or when, you, when you're thinking about this contest prep or like, listen, contest prep is just the, the ultimate, right? Even if it's just like losing fat in general at a high level. So not, not an average person. Cause we know that they're a different case, but at a high level, someone who actually wants to get in good shape, someone who's looking for peak level performance, do you, do you consider inflammatory markers and maybe the inflammatory effect of foods?
1: Yeah, I think it's something that should definitely be considered. Cause again, that high level of performance, those details are going to matter. Uh, and if you have some, you know, uh, low level inflammation from, uh, you know, consuming, you know, ultra processed foods over time uh, it can potentially contribute and maybe inhibit your, your performance, your ability to recover, uh, et cetera. So I, I definitely think it's something that we do have to pay attention to. And I think it's something that is often, again, just missed, uh, by, by, by the general public. But I think, again, those details are going to matter for high level performance athletes.
0: When it comes to, um, high level performance, what's your favorite area of research right now? What, What are you looking at? Like, what are you excited about right now?
1: Well, you know, what I'm excited for is really, um, again, kind of looking at where some of these gaps in the literature are, because we we see a lot of the literature and it, it studies, I mean, most typically it's going to study untrained or uh, recreationally trained individuals, which is great. Uh, that's fine. We can we can learn something from it, but can we infer that over to the high caliber athlete and, and uh, bodybuilding in particular uh, is an area where We're such a hard tribe to actually study just because, you know, we are so focused on our on our goals for our competitions and whatnot. And we're so geared onto our program that it's going to be hard to get volunteers to go into under some researchers arm. And now they have to control the variables as a researcher from that perspective. You have to really control as many variables as possible. So you're going to have to prescribe exact same diets, exact same training. You're only going to be able to manipulate one variable at a time, hopefully, if you're going to try to really investigate the effectiveness of that variable, which makes it very hard to study within uh, the tribe of elite athletes or including elite level bodybuilders or high level bodybuilders, just because they're not going to give up all of those tools to be able to go into this study. So. I think what I'm really excited about, what I've done now is kind of looked at, let's just see what's being done on the field, because I know I'm not going to be able to recruit them to come to do these particular studies. Maybe in the off-season, some may volunteer, but realistically, a lot of people don't want to give that up either, because the off-season is just as important as the in-season. So um, what I've looked at is, let's just see what's being done on the field. Uh, Maybe take smaller case studies, and uh, maybe you can take a handful of these individuals, and kind of study that and see what's going on. Uh, and then really see, you know, what, what's going on with those individuals at the individual level or a small cohort level uh, with, their, with, with those and try to just see observationally what's going on. And then from there, hopefully be able to recruit and maybe get some form other questions that we can we can go from.
0: How much are you looking at heart rate variability and its ability to impact decision making in performance?
1: Well that's not something that I particularly looked at but it's definitely something that I think is is important uh, because that 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 is a biomarker that I think we we probably maybe ignore uh and uh, we maybe don't don't consider um and I think there are a lot of simple biomarkers like blood pressure uh heart rate etc respiratory rate that that can potentially uh impact those and they're fairly easy to measure uh and you can actually help make decisions about what's going on. But if people aren't measuring again, you you can't assess what you're not measuring. Uh, and you can't you can't progress what you're not measuring. So you need to make have the have this this data available on yourself to be able to see uh maybe see trends in what yeah. you're doing. Because you may see a, a correlation between uh you know times where you wake up in the morning and hey, that that heart rate is 30 or 40 beats per minute higher than it normally has been. And that might correlate very well with your crappy performance in the gym or your inability to sleep, uh, et cetera.
0: Mm -hmm. So of that research you did, I know you put together an amazing um, research paper on the final week of contest prep. Um, what was the greatest thing you took out of that that maybe was contrary to what you believed going in?
1: Well, you know, I think what in that paper, what we really try to look at is, we we know what's what's uh, what are what are some of the common things that are done, and we really just try to dive in to see, you know, what is it that that uh, can potentially work and not work. And uh, you know, one of the biggest things, uh, obviously, when we looked at the literature, we see that okay, uh, observationally, a large large percentage of bodybuilders kind of in hierarchy you know, almost all of them manipulate carbohydrates. So they do some sort of carb deplete, carb load. That's very common uh, among the the tribe that that we study. The second thing that is manipulated is water and or sodium. But what was really interesting with that is how they get there is very different. So, uh, you know, a lot of these people, uh, for some reason, they do it. They don't even know why it works, how it works. They just know that it kind of just needs to be done. uh, So they think. And, um, and then, and then how they do it, you have things all over the map. You have people from, you know, drinking large quantities of water to drinking no water at all. You know, some people doing sodium loading, some people doing sodium depletion, some people doing both, uh, some people not taking into consideration, you know, that, uh, Hey, for me to carb load, I need some sodium to get those sodium glucose transport proteins to be able to absorb that glucose. And if you're carb loading and sodium depleting, that's probably not a good uh, combination. And then you see some of these other symptoms potentially like gastrointestinal symptoms. Well, yeah, like it kind of potentially makes, uh, makes sense when you're kind of not looking at the big picture. And the other big thing that we saw is just, there are so many variables that are put in the air that you know you you can't possibly isolate what's working and what's not when when you put three or four variables and they all interplay with each other, uh, you know it's really hard to determine that. So uh, having a an actual practice run you previously and first and foremost being prepared, making sure that this last week of of peak week is not going to be the miracle. What you did to prepare to get there. Um, And if you're not in shape, you know, in my perspective, if you're you're not in shape three to four weeks before your show, you need to push that finish line a little further out.
0: Yeah. The reality is most people are, are probably, and if you ask someone at what, what condition they're in, they'll say I'm in good condition and you look at them and they'll think they're five or 6% body fat. In reality, they're closer to 12% body fat. This is my experience, probably 80% of the people you see. And then they just try to drop water, take a bunch of diuretics. Like, I look really flat. Like, well, (laughs) you you, you simply were fat to begin with. You're just simply done shape. So like people who are in great shape in a a national level, regional level show, you know, like six or 7% body fat. These people are in really good shape. People who get like Mr. Olympia style in shape. That's when you start getting like sub 5%. Everyone has this belief that they're always like, oh, I did a contest. I got 5%. No, didn't, right? No, didn't. So first, let's go there. Let's see if we can get under 6% body fat, just as for a man, and obviously for a woman, like 10% uh, or so. And like, let's do that. And if you do that alone, the the water manipulation and sodium manipulation is simply not even necessary anymore, because you're going to be in exponentially better shape than anyone else. At that point, you can eat donuts, eat whatever the hell you want, because you've already won the show, right? <laughs> so the, that's where the donuts and stuff comes from, and people just don't understand. It's like it's not like going to get a miraculously change your physique. It's because it came from someone like Flex Wheeler, who was inside out peeled, and then he looked a little flat. And his coach goes, "Yeah, you might as well eat some donuts. There's nothing wrong with eating a little cheesecake and donuts, <laughs> right?" It, it wasn't like this. This is what people don't understand. It's like when you talk to these guys, like, yeah, it did become their go-to thing because they were in absolutely incredible shape. And like, hey, you know what? When I was peeled. I can kind of eat whatever I want. And it doesn't hit me for a few days before I start to look bad. It's not a solution, right? It's like, like yeah, you can go ahead and do this. And I think that's an important thing for people to acknowledge is when you think you're in shape, you have about six more weeks. And then, yeah.
1: yeah. And, I, I, and that goes hand in hand with uh, some of the, you know, these things that I think some of the, the judge, judge feedback, I think a lot of them, often give this and and I don't know if they're trying to be nice uh and they say instead of telling you it's like hey look you're basically 6 weeks out you're not in shape but they often tell them uh and I'm not going to say all of them but I hear this you're holding some water no you're not <laughs> holding water no. you're 6 weeks out that's yeah, yeah. the problem yeah. and then I think on the other side you have the coaches that kind of reinforce that because they don't want to be the ones that look bad and say that they didn't do a good job getting in shape to begin with, or they didn't open their mouth and told them you're just not ready for this show. You need to push it out six weeks.
0: I always joke that if I ran a show, I would sit backstage before the show and make people like strip down and like, show me, show me if you're in shape, if you're not in shape and kick you out. People don't like to hear that, but that's like, that's probably what what should be done is you kind of got to pass a test to walk on stage. I know that sounds really bad and people don't like to hear that, but the reality is like, I think if he did that, people would be more inclined to actually show up in shape because they know they're going to, they're going to die all this long. And the guys backstage, you know, sorry, dude, you're not good enough to go on stage. People would actually be, be motivated then to show, to show up in shape because people are coming and and you know, like, and when I say 10 or 12%, that sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not like, I would, I, I would estimate most people coming on, on, on. Onto a contest, um shape like or uh below national level, like a regional level show, or somewhere in the range of 10 to 12 percent. And they think they're you know six percent or whatever. I'm like, you're simply it's that's ridiculous. So again, first step one, get in better shape. Then what you do in the last week matters exponentially less. And that, that's from my own experience, right? Like if I'm in shape it doesn't matter what you eat the day before the show. You can drink water, you can eat sodium. You still look, I mean, yes, you want to get that one or 2% it can help. But at the end of the day, the margin for error is so much greater when you simply have, you know, low body fat levels.
1: Yeah. And that's one thing that we really highlighted. uh, At least we tried to highlight is, Hey, look, we're going to, we're going to talk about all this stuff and, uh, you know, uh, this is like the, this is like the sprinkles on top of this, on top of the cake. It's like, mm. you know, it's only, it's just, it's literally the things that ladder ladder, matter the least, all of yeah. these other components and just being showing up condition is most important.
0: People often ask the question of me and I'd like to ask it of you, what's, what does it look like to lose the last 10 pounds? Right. So someone comes to you and they're sick, like, Dr. Escalante, I'm, I'm, you know, six weeks out from a contest. And I'm legitimately 10 or 12% body fat. I probably have 10 or 12 pounds to lose. Um, what should I do? What's your approach? I mean, obviously, there's a lot. Like, what have you done get, to get there? But what, what do you say? What's the typical, like, do this?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I always think it's like the, you know, the first 10 or, you know, let's say, well, let's say we have a person starts at uh, 18, a guy starts at 18% body fat. You know, to get from 18 to 10, and you're going to look pretty decent at 10, um, it's hard but it's not that grueling, but to get down from 10 down to that last little bit, you know, to get those extra eight to 10, 12 pounds off, that's where the suffering really happens. So I I always tell the individual, it's like, okay, now like all of these little things are going to matter. You've already lost this amount. Your body's going to fight everything tooth and nail for you to get there. It's, it's, you've been dieting for X amount of time. Um, You're going to, you're going to have to really work uphill to be able to do that. so now uh all of these things like you know the nutrient timing becomes a little bit more important uh, you know, making sure that you're eating you know uh high uh, high nutrient dense foods is is gonna become very important. It's not your budget's gonna be a little bit less. you're gonna feel hungry frequently, you know and it's gonna be uncomfortable
0: pretty much uh, always.
1: Yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. Like you eat and then in five minutes, you're like, I'm pretty hungry.
0: Um, I used to drink mustard. (laughs) uh,
1: (laughs) We all have little things, right? And, uh, you know, you're, you're going to want to let them know that, you know, this is, this is what's coming. Um, so, you know, so you can do little tricks that maybe can help, maybe eat a little bit slower, chew your food a little bit more, maybe, maybe down 12, 16 ounces of water before you eat and wait a little bit and then eat and then chug a a good amount of water with your meal and then chug more water through the day to maybe kind of not feel that Uh, try to stay busy. A lot of times we, uh, I know the last few weeks, I'm usually so low in energy that I tend to maybe want to sit more, want to do less, but that just makes me obsess more over how miserable I am and how hungry I am instead of, uh, you know, staying active, doing these activities keeping your need up. I think that we talked about compensating for that. I think we yeah. were, we're busting our butt in the gym. We're in a caloric deficit, but now we're moving less. So now what, everything that you're doing extra is just kind of making up for what you were doing beforehand. Yeah. Um, uh, I think those are all the tips. That- that's
0: huge. So the one thing I say to everybody is the way you can make um, your last four weeks more successful one word, or two words, groundhog day, right? So the the more you can make it predictable and repetitive, the more you have control over the variables. So if you do the exact same thing, you do cardio at the same time, you do the workout at the same time, you have the meals at the same time. I know it doesn't sound glamorous, but what that allows me to do is Every three days I can reassess and go, have I made progress? Photos, body fat, body weight, whatever. Have I made progress every three days? And if I haven't, that means I need, either need to I need to make some changes, right? I need to either add a little, little bit of cardio, a little more neat, a little less food, whatever. But if I have four weeks and, and every day is groundhog day and it just gives me so much uh, less room for error. I'm like, I know exactly what I'm doing every day. It's exactly the same. It's predictability. So then when I'm going into the last week, I can go, how much time do I have? How much weight do I have to lose? Am I going to make it? Right. Because because anytime you make drastic changes, everything goes out the window. Like it, it never works. Right. So that that's always the thing I say to my client. Are you ready? Sometimes it's six weeks of Grand Hawk Day. Sometimes it's four, but like at the end of the day this, that this to me again is it is it glamorous no but it's like simple and replicable and when it comes down to getting sub 3 sub 4% body fat It's gonna be like, you simply need to create an unconscious habit where you get up in the morning, you do the cardio, you go at noon, you do the workout, right? Whatever. It's not like, what time am I gonna do this? I don't know if I'm gonna do it today. As soon as you start asking and and, and questioning yourself, it all goes out the window. Like you're you're gonna, you know, if I have to eat a different food today, can I have a cheat day today? I'm like, man, as soon as you ask those questions, You're going to fail. You just got to have groundhog day. And if you do it, it becomes so much more simple. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's replicable. And that's my, always my advice for people who are getting into that, that contest prep shape. Again, is it like scientifically advanced? No, but for me, like it's, it's like, is it replicable and is it consistent? Yes.
1: Yeah. And you hit on a very important note there. I think is the the part where it's uh as you said earlier the psychology of that is really hard and that's that's where you know most of the battle especially mm-hmm. these last four weeks so now your your stress levels are down because you don't have to think about it you know what you're going to eat you know when you're going to eat you know when you're going to work out uh it's it's just way easier to replicate and like we talked about from a scientific perspective like you said you can manipulate all the barrels. you know you've done the exact same methodology for the last three or four days and you've you've measured all all of these biomarkers, uh, or, or, uh, measuring markers to, to get to your progress. It, it helps you a lot. And then the last thing i want to say is ideally, if you can kind of get that groundhog day to occur, you know, a couple of weeks before your actual show. So then now you can kind of cruise into the show mm-hmm. and you can play with these final little details to see how your body works. Now it makes things way easier rather than trying to lose those extra two, three pounds the last 10 days before you have to step on stage.
0: Yep. So people often ask, what does the last week look like for me before a contest? And I'll tell you, if I do it right, the last four to six weeks is groundhog day. It's like, I do the same thing exact same time every day, more or less the same food. It may fluctuate a little bit, but it's really pretty linear. And I get into the last week, I'm probably in a caloric deficit by 20, 30% below my BMR. So the first thing I'm going to do is like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going to go back up to my BMR and I'm just going to like, just kind of bring my calories up a little bit, or maybe I bring them up above my BMR, right? Uh, or, or my total daily TDE, total daily expenditure. And so I'll bring it up just above TDE. And then I'll be like, okay, what, what happens to my body? How am I looking? If I'm not quite filling out, then I'll go a little higher. Right? And then I'll go, if I'm not filling out I'll go a little higher. So by, by Thursday, I'm pretty much full to begin with. If there's nothing miraculous that needs to happen on Friday. If I'm a little bit flat, I'll bump up over above TV again. And you're basically ready to go on Friday. There's nothing miraculous. There's no water depletion, sodium. low. Like You can do all that stuff. Does it make a difference at the Mr. Olympia? Yes. Does it make a difference at, a, at an average show? Absolutely not. And so people come to me and they're like, man, you're like, your, your method is so simple, but it works. And I was like, man, isn't that always the irony of life? Everyone's always looking for this miraculous way to do it. I'm like, man the way to do it is just don't be an idiot. Like, yeah. you know, above all, don't do not do anything stupid. And then <laughs> just do a little bit of work and it works.
1: Yeah, Gary, 100% for sure.
0: Cool, man. I absolutely love this conversation. Love chatting with you. Uh, where can our audience find more from you?
1: Uh, well, I have, a, my Instagram is at DrGfit, all one word spelled out. Uh, and that's probably where I make most of my posts uh, on there. You can find me on Facebook as well, at DrGfit as well. Uh, and, uh, they want to shoot me an email or whatever. Uh, they can find me, uh, I'm an assistant professor. I'm sorry, an associate professor at California state university, San Bernardino. Uh, so they can go on the, uh, CSUSB.edu website under kinesiology, and they can find all of my links there. Uh, and, uh, I'll be happy to uh, entertain any questions and, uh, hopefully they can follow me. I post a lot of stuff related to, uh, Health, fitness, nutrition and and bodybuilding, I, uh, with related to training and nutrition specifically.
0: Awesome. Well, please tag me in anything that's new that's coming out. I'd love to keep up up to date with you and your research and ultimately stay on the cutting edge of this sport because it's what I love, even though it's no longer my profession, certainly my lifelong passion and I'll never go away. I, I just love the idea of optimizing the highest level of human potential in every facet. Right, And so for me, for a long time, it was physical. And then I realized when I was aspiring to build this physical body that a very large percentage of my success and failure was mental so I started pursuing this this mental journey and started understanding the the mental uh, capacity and how to improve that for people as you know as, as a coach for people you know you can give them the best plan in the world and a large percentage of people don't follow through so you start looking at what are those things what are those kind of uh, intangible variables and then we we'll start looking at all the things we can measure and start stacking and stacking on top of that but ultimately I think the human body and human performance is so interesting it just never ends so you've chosen a great path and I look forward having you back on the show again whenever you're ready
1: well thanks so much for having me i appreciate it you know i'm i've uh, been a fan of uh you know your your bodybuilding career and i and i see all the great work that you do and i've always appreciated especially that you know you really apply the science and uh you know uh, again you you understand the importance of the details but you also under, understand and appreciate the, the importance of the science in applying some of that and the marriage of the two
0: Ladies, gents, there you have Dr. Guillermo Escalante joining me to discuss everything you want to know about low-intensity cardio, high-intensity cardio maybe a little bit of manipulation of salt and water and carbohydrates around contest prep. We get into a little bit about the dieting process, where you are, where you need to go. Hopefully that was incredibly value for you. If it was, I would love it if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a review on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere podcasts are listened to. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to, to, to subscribe because your subscriptions matter. I appreciate you guys. Another shout out to our amazing sponsor of the show, Bubs Naturals. I can't speak highly enough of this company that's giving 10% of profits back to charity and just investing deeply in uh, great products and product development MCT powder, uh, collagen. They've now got some um, beauty collagen. They've got some apple cider vinegar gummies, which are absolutely delicious. Bubs naturals.com. Use the code muscle. Get hooked up with 20% off. You will not regret it. Thank you later. Have a great day.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into muscle intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person, you know, make sure you're subscribed. So you never miss an episode. and in products or services referred to here in. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.